Hello and welcome to The Conversation. I'm super excited about the conversation today because we're going to have one of our frequent contributors, Maitha Al-Hassan on to discuss the Black Lives Matter movement, but particularly the abolition messaging coming from the movement. What does it mean? How will this uh, play out? We'll go into the details on that and uh, we'll discuss other issues related to uh, what we're seeing today uh, with the Black Lives Matter movement. Maitha, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation. I'm excited that you guys are making space to do a deep dive into abolition because I think it's one of the most misunderstood parts of trying to parse out the defund the police movement. Definitely, I mean, I, I think that there is there are so many people out there in the media who have like definitive statements when in reality it's actually a very nuanced and, and uh, complex discussion and I'm, I'm happy to have that discussion here today. Before we talk about the abolition movement though, I do wanna discuss uh, something that you brought to my attention earlier and it was a tweet by the GOP attacking not only Black Lives Matter as a movement, but also the co-founder of the movement, Patrice Cullors. And so I'll read you the text of the tweet and then I'll share the video that they also embedded in that tweet. They write, left-wing anarchists are using chaos to destroy America. President Trump stands for law and order. And then of course they encourage voters to vote for Donald Trump. And in that tweet, they embedded the following video, and I do want to warn you, it's full of nonsense, but I do think it's important to uh, play it and then debunk uh, what they're claiming. Take a look. I also think that we actually do have an ideological frame. We uh, are trained Marxists. This could be a police cruiser, Tom, that you mentioned that is burning right now. I just don't even know why there aren't uprisings all over the country. Maybe there will be. Flames ripped through the lower level of St. John's Church. And as you can see, uh, there's definitely a fire here. Make sure that police departments are defunded. We need to completely dismantle the Minneapolis Police Department. The driver hit two officers. We have an incredible opportunity to fundamentally transform our country. The first statue that we came across was Ulysses Grant. It was toppled, it was lying in the pathway. Look what you did to my store. No! These people are tearing up our livelihood. We are trained Marxists. So, so Maitha, like my, my favorite right wing, you know, talking point is like the fear mongering about Marxism when, you know, I think we both know if you were to pull one of these Republicans aside and just ask them questions about Marxism, they'd have no idea what Marxism oh. is, what it means. It's just, they've made it a dirty word when in reality, based on like policy polling, the majority of Americans actually favor Marxist policy proposals. But nonetheless, um, I, I want you to kind of do a, a little bit of a dive into uh, that video, the allegations against Black Lives Matter, and, um, you know, give us the information that uh, we've come to expect from you. <laughs> um, I'm not laughing at that last point, but everything that you just set up with this tweet and this video, that is primarily meant to instill fear. That's basically what Republicans and GOP are fear for folks. There is so little and so much said in this tweet. And 
this video at the same exact time. So, so much because they are dog whistling to a history of calling for law and order, for a history of trying to support the logic of policing, of criminalizing people, of also stigmatizing resistance, Marxism in this case, and also by association stigmatizing the Black Lives Matter movement. You can see that a part of this whole story was the overthrow of the statues, the chaos that is created, and also the misapprehension of what Marxism means. How do you lead with a tweet that says leftist anarchist and then associate it with Marxist, especially since mm -hmm. Marxism is about concentrated state power for social services and anarchy is no government. So they don't know what they're saying, but they do know what they want you to feel, which is fear. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's the, the idea that people who are protesting right now want chaos and anarchy. You know, in reality, what I see happening is people out there who want to defund the police or want to reform the police, even people who say they, they want abolition of police. What they're essentially calling for is the type of policing in America that has worked out pretty well for the privileged, but has not worked out well for people of color, people who have no power, people who have no resources or money. You know, there is a, a difference in the way certain people in this country um, have experienced policing. And so I think that's part of the disconnect as well, right? Because there are, I'm sure, a ton of well-intentioned people who have only had positive experiences with police. So they're like baffled at some of the, uh, you know, accusations that have been uh, lodged toward police uh, since the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement. But I think now more and more Americans are waking up to what the reality is because we have endless video, endless surveillance showing the brutality that people have been facing at the hands of local police departments throughout the country. Yeah, I think that what you just led with is critical to understand what the movement is asking for, which is for far right folks, even some liberals, the idea that going to the streets and protesting feels like chaos. But for people who've experienced what Ruth Wilson Gilmore calls organized abandonment, organized abandonment of vulnerable communities by the state, state services. So a divestment from people and investment in apparatuses of security, that feels like, but getting onto the streets feels like reaffirming power within a system that they have had taken the, the flooring from underneath them. And they've had to figure out how to navigate in this world, in this life. And as you were saying, the for some folk, because they haven't experienced police in the way that most vulnerable community, you know, some folks see a police car and feel protected. That's not my case at all. Patrice Colors, who was mentioned in that video, and they were also trying to create a lot and trump up fear towards her. She has this great story about an activist, Natalie Portman, and she said this before, who didn't want to necessarily get on board with defund the police because she's had positive experiences with stopping people from stalking her or creating a buttress of security. But back said, 
if the people that I'm concerned about and the justice that I want to fight for are saying defund the police, there's something that I'm not understanding and I have to take time to fill in the blanks, to fill in the gaps of understanding. And then she left that position and jumped on board to the defund the police movement through conversations with Patrice, through actually studying what it means to be part of an abolitionist movement. So Maitha, you have, um, not only do you have, uh, you know, connections to this movement and you definitely understand it better than any of the talking heads on cable television, you know, you have historical context to provide in your analysis. So I'm grateful that you're taking the time to, you know, share your thoughts on abolition with us. So um, let's start off with a, a, a broad question, uh, but I think an important question. What is meant by abolishing the police? Thank you for that. A lot of people are not making the connection that defund the police is part of an abolition movement. When you hear the term or the phrase defund, a lot of people think about reduction and then in reinvestment in other segments of civil society. But really, the people who started this movement are part of a longer history called abolition. And abolition in this country can be seen as going all the way back to resisting chattel slavery, all the way through uprisings against the prison industrial complex. And as we know, slavery has very deep, well, the prison has deep roots in slavery. Some people call it the afterlife of slavery being inscribed in how prisons were built, expanded. And so it makes a lot of sense that the, the current iteration of the abolition movement was revived when key organizers and thinkers started to see what prisons became in the US and then how police were tied, how logics of security were tied into the whole apparatus of organized violence and organized abandonment. And so some of those moments that happened where in the 1970s, there were prison uprisings. There was a book by George Jackson called Soledad Brothers that took a, a deep look into what the prison was. Uh, uh, the prison was a surveillance and punishment tool of the state. Um, and then you, you look all the way up to the 1990s and there's this organization that gets formed called Critical Resistance. And they are deeply embedded in something called an international movement against the prison industrial complex. And what they are doing is challenging the belief that caging and controlling people makes us better. And so that comes into being in 1997. And the people who found it are people we are either starting to hear today for the first time, or people have been listening to these folks for decades. Angela Davis, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, um, Rosie Braz, who recently passed away. And these women, led this movement that also put scholarly research like Our Prisons, Abolish, Our, Our Prisons Obsolete by Angela Davis that came out in 2003. So a lot of folks today that call themselves abolitionists come from a prison abolitionist movement, me included. I actually got politicized when I went to school in New York in 2006 and I started working with incarcerated youth at Rikers Islands, Rikers Island. And when you start to see the logic of what the prison becomes, which is a concentration of power for the state and for corporate elite, and to also discipline people who will not be absorbed into what they call a racial capitalist order. So 
folks who are not deemed useful and then folks who are deemed criminals are put into this place where their labor is exploited, where they themselves are taken away from their families and their whole communities are dismembered. So there's a lot to this whole logic, this whole system of what the prison is and what the prison does. And so by extension, when we were talking about abolishing the police, the police, people don't know how much money the police are given. For decades, we've been talking about the prison. If anybody looks up, and these are all part of public records, what the police make in your communities, if you live in California, you can go to California Transparent, anybody can look it up. The police chief in my city that I'm from makes the most money out of everybody. They wow. make more than a quarter of a million dollars. And that's why they retire at 45. They don't need to work. And the other interesting thing is that you see the jump from when police first enter the force and they make a pretty moderate income to then racking up hours, overtime, benefits, and they can jump from 40 to $100,000 in a year. And to even psych you guys more out about this, as a um, incoming professor at a university, campus police make more than me. Campus Wow. Campus police. And the function of the university is what? Does the university exist without faculty? Does the university exist without professors? Absolutely not. But who's deemed valuable? The police? Can the university exist without the police? Of course it can. And in fact, they don't stop the rampant prevalence of rape and sexual assault on campus. They don't stop much of anything. So why have we adhered to the logic the police are necessary, that they're important, and that they're valuable to us living healthy, thriving, life-affirming existences? So you know, I went all over the place, but I, I do want to, I want to underscore the point that they're like the tie of the, the police to the prison is a kind of logic, a logic that yes, I see you nodding your head, yeah. No, no, you're, I mean, you've brought up so many great points and the conversation can go in so many different directions, um, but let me try to address what really stood out to me. So what you mentioned about the, uh, how prisons are really interwoven into this unjust system makes a lot of sense. And I think that capitalism has a lot to do with it as well. So, uh, Prisons have served as a way to continue uh, the slavery that we claim to have uh, combated in this country. Because when you look at our prisons, um, the people who are in prison are disproportionately people of color, right? Yeah. And when I, when I bring up capitalism, I bring it up in the context of those prisoners being exploited for their labor. I'll, I'll give you one specific example. In California, for instance, where there are constant wildfires and they're only exacerbated by climate change, you would think that the fire department would wanna hire more firefighters, people who have to go through very extensive background checks. Uh, my husband went through that process. Uh, they literally show up to wherever you live and they talk to as many neighbors as possible to make sure that you're okay to hire. What I found out was that California doesn't really need to hire firefighters because they rely on prison inmates yep. to fight. Like they're on the front lines in some cases, 
fighting these wildfires and getting paid next to nothing to do it, right? Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. that's a huge problem. And it's not just about firefighters. I mean, you see this in all sorts of industries where, where prison labor is being exploited. And then, yeah, so I, I, it's a huge problem. And, and it's one thing to say, look, we need prisons for uh, people who pose um, a risk, right? They're a danger to society, they're violent, uh, they're actually gonna cause harm to others. But if you look at the types of people who uh, tend to become imprisoned, and when you look at the timeline of when our prison population really explode, exploded, you'll see that it's due to nonviolent crime, yeah. right? And so, and disproportionately, people of color get targeted uh, and prosecuted and convicted for those nonviolent crimes. And then one other thing I wanted to bring up, uh, Maytha, is yes, prisons are certainly involved in the system, but there's also the issue of foreign policy, right? Because our militarized police are militarized through our defense spending. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So what happens with the overproduction of weapons of mass destruction is a couple of things. One, it goes to the military. Uh, it goes to contracted private <laughs> military as well. And people make money off of that. War is a moneymaker for the defense industry, for weapons contractors. But also when there is reserve stock or they're done using equipment, they either sell it at a low cost or give it for free to the police department. So that's why you see police departments have tear gas. They have SWAT gear. They have tanks. And we saw a lot of this stuff during the Ferguson uprising in 2014. But we also saw it in how Border Patrol is furnished with and and enrobed in that equipment too. And we see them throw tear gas at people crossing the border. So this is not just, when we say abolish the police or defund the police, it is in line with the same organizers who have called to abolish ICE. It's in line with the same people and organizers who've said, we have to end our military industrial complex. We have to end endless wars. So all these systems are are interwoven together and so must our argument and so must our movement work as well. And that's what is actually meant by intersectionality. I know people think about intersectionality as identities, but it's about really understanding the interlocking systems that produce a certain kind of power inequality, that produce what we're seeing in terms of abandonment like we were talking about. I also wanna make sure to address um, you, you know, you were talking about the use of prison labor, which I mm -hmm. think is very interesting because Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who I mentioned before, you know, Angela Davis has certainly written a lot about this sort of this stuff as well. But she looks at the 1970s as being this time of massive prison explosion, explosion. And that's because prisons were seen as a fix for surplus labor. And so the guards, the the people who get employed to contract the materials, the construction, all of that was seen as a fix for rural communities that could not get jobs. And then also people that are, that co corporations that are outsourcing to other countries don't need to do that. Victoria's Secret and LA um, firefighters can go just to the prisons and pay folks cents on the hour to exploit their labor. And so it's much cheaper to have somebody in prison for the, you know, the other thing which is really interesting is the manufacture of the idea of a crime. Like you said, most people are nonviolent offenders, but a lot of people too 
who believe in the abolition of police, believe in the abolition of prisons as well. And that's a longer discussion of what it means to say, how can we live in a society without police and how can we live in a society without prisons? So um, since we have so little time left, uh, I do wanna ask, you know, well, first let me just say, to, to make it out as if BLM is like a monolithic group, I think is wrong because there are nuances, there are differences in opinion about what policing in America should look like. Um, Vox did a really great piece where uh, they spoke to a number of different um, political scholars about abolition and they're different in their answers. And so I do wanna ask you, in your perfect world, let's say you can snap your fingers and we live in this utopia where we have policing in this country that actually makes sense and it works for everyone, what would that look like? Abolition, abolitionists think about something called community accountability and transformative justice. So we would have decentralized mental health centers. That's what a lot of people are suffering from. We would have um, universal basic income of some sort. We would have people have access to basic life goods and thriving communities and healthy air, clean water. We would have all the things that we need that wouldn't produce the conditions that would produce the harm that end up being categorized as crime. And so we might not even need police if we think about designing a world that is built around love, truth, and justice. And opportunities. I mean, a lot of yeah. crimes that do occur are crimes of desperation. And it's only gonna get worse as inequality continues to grow in this country. And by the way, we're about to set a record in the United States for like just the sheer volume of billionaires. We're close to 800 billionaires in the United States. Oh and this comes at a time when tens of millions of Americans have lost their jobs and the healthcare that comes along with those jobs uh, due to the pandemic. But Maitha, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with me. Um, you know, I don't think that this is enough. It's an ongoing discussion. Um, and, you know, you're always insightful, always give us the context that, that we need. And I appreciate it. Thank you.